I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Uh, good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, usually, with our, often with our speakers, we have their books out in the lobby uh, for you to buy. <laughs> But if we had all of the O'Reilly books out there, there would probably not be room for people to get by. Um, and profound fans for each one of them, I suspect. These are deeply geeky books. And his conferences, and his food camps, and the Maker Fairs, and Make Magazine. I've been an editor, and I guess these days I'm being a curator in... It used to be the editor sort of kept out of sight. The editor of the New Yorker was a mystery for many years for many people. Who is that? What's on his mind? Chris Anderson at TED, magazine, at TED uh, conferences are a, uh, as a curator. An important thing to know about curators and editors and publishers is some of them have an agenda, and that's kind of boring once you know the agenda. But the thing they're good at is knowing what's going on. Um, the stuff that you see that they produce, the books that they bring out, the conferences that they put on, the people that they invite to the conferences, are the best or the most interesting or the most accessible of the many, many more people and things that they know about. And so when you really want a sound, intellectual, active reflection on what's going on in the world, ask a good editor, a good publisher, a good curator. And we got one of the best here tonight, Tim O'Reilly. Thanks very much. Sir. Thanks very much. Uh, I want to say, uh, first off, just uh, I'm very honored to be here. The very first place uh, that I tried to get published when I was a budding writer was in Stuart Brand's Co-Evolution Quarterly. And uh, I just want to say I, I've always been a huge fan of uh, his work and uh, I've tried to follow in his footsteps. Uh, what I want to talk about today is going to be informed both by what I am thinking about in the technology world, but also in the spirit of long now, looking back uh, both at my own personal uh, history and also uh, looking back in time. Uh, some of you may know I was originally trained as a classicist, so looking back at uh, a little bit at, at Greek thought and then uh, forward uh, towards the future. But it's going to be kind of a, uh, a historical look at how I came to think some of the things that I think as well as uh, what I'm thinking about. Uh, I start a lot of my talks uh, with this wonderful quote from Edwin Schlossberg who said, the skill of writing uh, is to create a context in which other people can think. And it's a lot of what I do in my uh, work, uh, as Stuart says, as an editor, curator, writer. Um, I try to frame things in a way that people can see them. And often what's going on in the world uh, is obvious in retrospect but not prospectively. 
And it's by framing them differently that we're able to see what's going on. So I'm going to talk about a number of things that are probably fairly familiar to many of you, but I'm going to try to frame them in a way that you can see them anew. And the biggest thing that I'm talking about is really the convergence of computing and human potential and the way that it is taking us towards something that you could uh, call a global brain. Now, when you hear that, you probably, in this group, you probably first think, oh, the singularity, you know, and all the stuff you've read about that. But that's actually not what I'm talking about. And by the way, I, I, in kind of preparing for the talk, I found a wonderful little tidbit about the singularity. It, you know, we usually associate that term with Werner Vinge or, uh, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil. But in fact, it was first articulated by John von Neumann. You know, as, as George Dyson has reminded us, almost everything that we think about in technology today was first anticipated by John von Neumann. So Stan Ulam in 1958 recounted a conversation that he had with John von Neumann. He said, our conversation centered on the ever-accelerating progress of technology and changes in the mode of human life, which gives the appearance of approaching some essential singularity in the history of the race beyond which human affairs, as we know them, could not continue. Uh, so... You know, that notion that somehow we're heading towards a future that's very different uh, is a powerful idea. And it's one uh, that I think has captured the imagination of a lot of people. We also have all kinds of dystopian visions in popular culture of what this sort of potential future global brain might be, whether it's the Skynet of the Terminator movies or the Matrix. Uh, we have uh, from Kevin Kelly, uh, you know, who's very you know, dear to many of us, uh, uh, this notion of the technium uh, as a new order of life. Uh, wonderful, uh, you know, Kevin has got some wonderful thinking about uh, how technology is taking us forward to something uh, new. This is a piece I pointed to uh, uh, called Evidence of a Global Superorganism. Uh, you know, and he, he talks in this piece, this is I think 2008, uh, 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 about uh, an emerging superorganism of computers. Uh, I really recommend uh, his new book, uh, What Technology Wants, and uh, it's very consistent with my thinking. But uh, it's not really computers I want to start with. I want to actually start back in uh, the early 70s uh, when I was working with a guy named George Simon who came to, be, uh, when I first met him, he was a Boy Scout leader, actually. And uh, he later went on to become a workshop leader at Esalen. Uh, there was this huge ferment in the 70s, something that, you know, if some of you may remember, we called the human potential movement. And it was really about how do we tap into something, uh, you know, inside that will make us, uh, you know, more, better. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was just a kid, uh, but I, I did actually, when I was 18 years old, I actually co-taught workshops at Esalen with George. He was a, you know, wonderful, brilliant guy, uh, kind of crazy. You know, when I kind of talk about some of his ideas, I go, wow, this is just a f weird footnote. But almost everything that I've accomplished, I actually learned from him. Uh, he kind of taught me a way of seeing fresh. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, and actually, the very first book I published uh, was... Uh, uh, a transcription that I did of, of George's notebooks. He, he did these little, uh, you know, pocket notebooks where he wrote all the stuff he was thinking in. Uh, you know, it was published in an edition of, I think, 500 copies. I actually put it out by subscription. It was kind of very early, uh, you know, paper Kickstarter, uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, this is after he died in an accident. Uh, but his 
you know, key notion was that language was a map and that we could actually create maps of human consciousness both, uh, you know, in history and as it went forward in time. And he had all these, you know, very complicated maps. In the uh, little, little uh, introduction to this book, I wrote something like, uh, you know, uh, George was a little bit like the guy who discovered fire. He had all kinds of stories about what it was, and most of them were probably wrong. You know, but no matter what, anybody who had fire, they got it from him. And that's how I felt growing up. He kind of taught me something. So all, even though everything he, he said was probably wrong, there was this inner truth to it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that was. He started with um, um, uh, a guy named Alfred Korzybski, the founder of General Semantics, which was another bit of sort of pop, uh, you, know, you know, kind of the kind of pop intellectual culture that we're all part of today, except this is in the 1930s uh, and going forward. Uh, and Korzybski uh, was the first to articulate this notion that, uh, you know, uh, we really need to understand how language shapes and frames our thinking. You know, Korzybski uh, literally thought that many of the pathologies in human society were because we had bad language. You know, when you think about racism, we're actually calling people names and we're not seeing below the names to the real person. That would be a typical example. But here's an example from my own life. I moved to Sebastopol, uh, you know, in 1989 and I hadn't really been a country boy and I'd look out in the field and I'd see grass. After a few years of having horses and learning the names of things, I would see oat grass, alfalfa, orchard grass, rye grass, and I was able to make those distinctions, and I had names for them, and I could talk about them. And that ability of language uh, to enable us to see was a, is a big part of this notion of language as a map. Korzybski had this other idea, uh, probably the, the, the line that he's most famous for is, the map is not the territory. You know, this idea that, that if, if you get it wrong, you kind of get caught up in your map and uh, you don't actually look anymore at what's real. And uh, Korzybski actually had this as kind of an experiential practice. He had this little device that he called the structural differential, uh, which he had people kind of try to identify when they were talking or arguing. He'd say, where are you on the structural differential? And uh, you would kind of try to accustom yourself to... to getting a sense of, for that. So the structural differential began with a parabola. You know, Korzybski's uh, point was reality itself is infinite, right? And then the circle dangling from that parabola was our experience of whatever that infinite thing is, you know, which is limited. You know, we only, our sensorium only takes in part of uh, what's actually out there. And then we attach labels to it. We name it, right? And uh, so you can kind of see that, that, that process you know, there's the, there's the real world, uh, open-ended parabola, the, the experience. And, of course, there were multiple circles in the structural differential because each of us, there's only one thing out there. There's one parabola, but there's many experiences of each of us has a separate one. And then, of course, we each have these different sets of labels and maps and stories about what that is. Um, so George, kind of being a typical, you know, sort of uh, syncretist of the, of, of the 70s, sort of, mashed that up with the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo, who kind of had this story about the supermental, you know, consciousness that was going to come down, uh, you know, and, and was the future of humanity. And George kind of said, oh, well, actually, kind of, that's like Korzybski, you know, the, that infinite parabola, that's this supermental future of humanity, and we bring it down into our experience. And, um, oh, sorry, I seem to have gone one slide past. Uh, let me go back here. 
uh, you know, we bring it down into our, our, our experience and, and then we, we label it and so on and we tell stories about it. And George actually came up with another way to represent this, uh, which was to... And why am I not... There we go. Uh, which was to draw a... Um, uh, you know, what he called his quadrant system, you know, where he represented the first quadrant is the, the beingness of the thing, then you experience it, and then you map it, you come up with a story about it. And then he added another element, which is that you integrate it into yourself and it becomes part of who you are. And he had this story that, that kind of said, okay, uh, what we've added here is this notion that we become uh, something as a result of what we know and how we think and what we bring in from the outside. And, uh, you know, he also kind of made the point that this happens at a species level, or he believed that this happens at a species level as well as at an individual level. So, you know, we're collectively the sum of all that's gone before us. Our human experience passed down, incorporated, you know, in, in ourselves, in culture. And he also had the notion that human consciousness is still evolving. So I kind of imbibed all this stuff when I was a teenager. Uh, and then I went to college, uh, decided specifically to go into classics because I was interested in this notion of the evolution of human consciousness. And I was influenced by books like Bruno Snell's Discovery of the Mind. You know, Snell pointed out things like the fact that uh, you know, the Greeks didn't really have words like even body and soul. You know, they talk about parts of the body, but there are no words for the complete body. They have six or seven different words that seemingly map to things like, you know, soul, you know, like psyche. You know, but psyche actually just meant breath. You know, if you actually study the language, they use psyche to mean, you know, the breath came out of somebody. When they're talking about somebody making a decision, it's, for example, Athena speaking to somebody in their thumos. You know, it's... it's a completely different sense of, of what a human being is than what we have today when you, when you look at Homer. And yet, you know, by 400 years later, in uh, classical Athens, in the Golden Age, you know, everything about the way we think of a, a modern human being is there fully present. So he tried to sort of say, look, over this 400 years, something really happened in the evolution of how humans think of themselves and how they experience themselves even. You know, this notion of free will, of agency. Uh, you know, there's not a single point anywhere in Homer where somebody is described as making a decision. You know, somebody does something because the God spoke to him or moved him in this organ, the thumos, or, you know, uh, so on and so forth. Anyway, so it was kind of interesting. Um, uh, the... Um, he also pointed out the relationship to the gods, you know, was a way of describing the world in terms of kind of an almost animistic quality. You know, Aphrodite, I mean, how, who doesn't experience Aphrodite? Aphrodite is, is really a force that we all see. You know, the gods were sort of an, a way of explaining uh, the world. And that gave way to a different way of explaining the world over the next, uh, you know, few centuries. And that uh, way of explaining the world uh, had to do with more a uh, process of thinking and logic and discovery. And it was sort of interesting because, of course, 
uh, you know, Socrates was put on, you know, put to death for irreligion. He was, you know, he was considered, even though he observed all the religious rites, he was somehow threatening to the idea that the gods were what moved us. He was somebody who said, no, 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 you actually can in yourself uh, think about these things. You can come up with your own ideas. And that was a revolutionary idea. Uh, I was also back in college. I read this book, uh, The Savage Mind, by Claude Levi-Strauss, uh, the father of structural anthropology. And he talked about the notion uh, that the, you know, sort of what he called the savage mind was a little bit like a handyman who explained the world in terms of the things that, you know, that are to hand. Uh, you know, totemism, uh, which he focused on. You know, you're, you're kind of explaining that if you have this kind of spirit, it's because you're, you know, you have the spirit of a cougar. If you're, if you're like this, it's because you have the spirit of, um, you know, an eagle. And then he kind of compared that to the engineering mindset. So I sort of saw that and I kind of put it into sort of George's uh, sort of framework about thinking about the evolution of consciousness. And I was sort of trying to figure out how all these things related. And I started thinking, well, George had this notion that the next stage of consciousness was something bigger. And I thought, what's that like? And I actually ended up, uh, in my own thinking, uh, tying that into uh, the poetry of Wallace Stevens, you know, who had this notion that uh, you know, truth is actually a, a kind of a fiction that we persuade each other of, and that it's ultimately aesthetics that is uh, you know, the future of kind of uh, human cognition. It's not actually the, the, this sort of engineering mindset that we find an objective truth. It's actually this notion that uh, you know, reality is an exercise of the most august imagination. And I, I love that idea, uh, and, and I, it kind of stuck in my head. And you, you'll see why I shared that with you when I come to the end of this presentation. So my you know, 1975 Harvard's, Harvard Honors Thesis was about mysticism versus logic uh, in Plato's dialogues. There were a bunch of ideas there uh, where people would say, well, why does Plato explain this with this fantastic, you know, mystical imagery? You know, and it must be because he was influenced by the Pythagoreans. And I said, nonsense, you know, I know exactly why Plato describes things like justice with this incredible flowery language. Because when he was first thinking about it, that's exactly what it was. It was a new idea. It was powerful. It was numinous. It was full of juice. Of course you described it that way. It was like, wow! The experience was wow. And now we rehearse it and we kind of go, oh yeah, okay, got that. You know, I read it in a book. You know? And you guys know that. The first time you experience something, it has power. And later on, it's boring, right? You know, so, uh, you know, it was kind of that, that sort of psychological insight that I, I uh, tried to, you know, put in, inject into that classical discussion. So, uh, anyway, as I mentioned, George had this notion that the next, global, the next stage uh, of humanity was a kind of global consciousness. And, of course, this was a very occurrent idea in certain circles in the 70s. Some of you may remember T.L.R. Deschardins, you know, his notion of the omega point and, uh, the, you know, the, the newosphere and the future of humanity. It was sort of the, the spiritualist uh, singularity of the, of the 70s. Um, and, you know, this continued really into the 80s. You know, you guys may remember the harmonic convergence of 1987. Uh, you know, we were all going to be taken up with this great, you know, global consciousness. You know, so, well, all a bunch of new age mumbo jumbo, right? 
You know, so I, I thought it was kind of... <laughs> but, you know, fast forward to 2003, you know, I kind of put all that behind me, got involved in the computer industry and, and uh, you know, wrote computer manuals and got involved in open source software and then started, you know, kind of being an industry storyteller for the computer industry. And around 2003, I, I, I gave a talk and I'm actually, I found some slides from an old talk I was giving a talk called The Open Source Paradigm Shift, and I was kind of explaining why I thought that the open source and the Internet was actually changing all the rules of computing. And, uh, you know, I, I started with the notion that the killer apps of the Internet were these sites like Amazon and Google and actually MapQuest, which obviously went away, and eBay. Uh, but, you know, I said, you know, it's not just software, it's, it's infoware. You know, the editorial content is part of the user experience. Users help build the product. The product changes every day. The internet, not the PC, is the platform. And then there was this other kind of, you know, really important piece. You know, I started using the image of von Kempelen's Mechanical Turk to explain a fundamental way that uh, computer software of you know, this new generation was different from, say, any previous generation of software. And it was the idea that the programmer was still inside the application. You know, for those of you who don't know, Von Kempelen's Mechanical Turk was a chess-playing, quote, robot that, uh, you know, uh, was introduced in, in 1770 by Ludwig von Kempelen. It play, would go, play against all comers. Actually, Charles Babbage played against it and lost, and it, it, actually got him, it actually was part of what got him thinking about whether computing, a real computing device was possible. It wasn't revealed until 1820 that it was actually a hoax. They'd just hide a really good chess player inside this thing, and he would work it by uh, knobs and levers. And this came to me in, actually, 1998, when I was writing paper about the importance of the Perl programming language, which was sort of the first of the you know, modern scripting languages. Some of you may know, you know Python and Ruby and PHP have become important languages on the internet. Well, Perl was the, the first one. And I went to my authors and said, what do you use Perl for? And this one guy, Jeff Friedel, who worked at, it was the author of my book on regular expressions, uh, worked at Yahoo at you know, finance.yahoo.com. I said, what do you do all day, Jeff? And he said, I write regular expressions to match up news stories to ticker symbols. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's a guy inside that application, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And so I actually started, you know, going, he talks, this is actually one of the secret sauce, you know, that it's, there's, there's people here. And then a few years later, Dale Doherty, uh, you know, kind of came up with this term, Web 2.0, uh, which was about the second coming of the web after the dot-com bust. And I started using that term to describe the characteristics of those applications that had, or these sites that had survived the dot-com bust and gone on uh, to succeed and, and to distinguish them from what went before. And what did I say? Again, these are slides from, in this case, from 2005. I said they're using the Internet as a platform for harnessing collective intelligence. You know, so here I am. You know, 20 years after that sort of New Age episode, kind of saying the same thing again, just for a different reason. And uh, so maybe there was something in that 70s vision after all. And to explain what it might be, uh, you know, I want to go back to Korzybski. He had this wonderful term he used called time binding. He said, 
human progress is dependent on time binding. And the first tool for time binding is language. That's our ability to take something from the here and now and pass it on over time and space. That's sort of the essence, in a lot of ways, of the long now uh, idea here. You know, we are actually able to capture something and pass it on to people who are not present. And if you think about the evolution of that, you know, you can think about human con- the evolution of human consciousness is actually the evolution of our ability to transfer ideas and information from mind to mind. You think spoken language, written language, mass media, the internet. And you start seeing in something like Twitter, for example, the ability of a new meme to rise up and spread very, very quickly. Remember, for example, when Occupy Wall Street burst onto the scene and you look at Twitter hashtags, they're really kind of like new thoughts in this shared space that we're all having. Uh, Danny Hillis, uh, another uh, long now uh, member, uh, you know, uh, actually once explained this beautifully when he said global consciousness is that thing that decided that decaffeinated coffee pots should be orange. <laughs> you know, you think about it, how there was a brand color for Sanka and then somebody else adopted that and it kind of went from there. There's actually a, a wonderful essay from 1958 on this same concept called iPencil. How many people here in the, in the audience have ever read iPencil? Google it. Uh, totally worth reading. It, it's sort of a, a, an account, a first-person account written by a pencil. Uh, yeah, a, a, and it says, you know, I'm this sort of seemingly simple object, and yet there is no one of you who could make me. You know, and it's really about the way that we as a culture have this vast distributed intelligence. And that's another aspect that, uh, you know, of what Danny uh, was talking about here. Um, uh, you know, clearly uh, this is evolving in some interesting ways. You know, we saw with the Egyptian revolution last year, you know, the ability of people to share ideas and memes and inspire each other to action. Uh, we haven't necessarily had the outcome that we hope from that, but interesting process. Uh, we also look at something like Wikipedia, you know, as a, as a tool for collective intelligence. This and when we had the great Sendai earthquake in 2011, this was the initial Wikipedia entry, a single line in you know, broken English, an earthquake occurred, uh, the earthquake possible to create regional tsunami on the zone. And uh, over the next few months, it evolved in this powerful way. You watch it, you know, just as thousands of people contribute, and this thing turns into this full-featured encyclopedia entry. Uh, Michael Nielsen, in his wonderful book, Reinventing Discovery, uh, which is a book about, uh, you know, sort of collective intelligence and scientific discovery, uh, says Wikipedia is not an encyclopedia. It's a virtual city, a city whose main export to the world is its encyclopedia, but with an internal life of its own. And I think that's a really interesting uh, way to think about collective intelligence. You know, another wonderful example of collective intelligence at work uh, came into play after the Haiti earthquake last year. Uh, there was a project called Mission 4636. It was coordinated uh, by the State Department, but involved all kinds of incredible cooperation between far-flung people using this hodgepodge of tools. You know, you have this earthquake in an area uh, where people are buried. There's no maps. You know, they're trying to say, how do I get help? And people started to use their mobile phones. You know, State Department got a, 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 a short code, 4636, set up. 
And so people were out there saying, oh, we need you know, help here. There's somebody buried under a house. Oh, wait, there's no map. Well, OpenStreetMap came in, started mapping uh, you know, the, 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 the slums so that actually be locations that they could you know, uh, send in. Then they're sending in these messages, but the people who are sending them in are speaking Haitian Creole. Right? They don't actually speak English, you know, and the rescuers are all speaking English. Well, they used actually Crowdflower and Amazon Mechanical Turk to reach out to the Haitian diaspora community to translate the SMS messages into English so they could send them back to the Red Cross and the U.S. Marine Corps who were there to go you know, dig the people out from under the rubble. And it was this amazing you know, exercise in communication and coordination, ad hocracy, as uh, I think Corey Doctorow once uh, you know, defined it, uh, which is kind of a really interesting sign of, you know, a collaborative, collective intelligence future that is probably more interesting and exciting than just the examples that I used in the Web 2.0 example, you know, of how Google harnesses collective intelligence on the web or how social media does. It's really put to, to use. But in terms of understanding just how far this can go, I want to move to a, a different technology story. I want to talk about the Google Autonomous Vehicle. Uh, doesn't look much like a story of collective intelligence, but it actually is. You know, you see, because back in 2005, when DARPA issued the Grand Challenge, you know, the winning car went seven miles in seven hours, right? That was the state of AI. Uh, and yet, in 2011... Google announced they had a car that had driven hundreds of thousands of miles in ordinary traffic. You know, what was the difference? You know, was it just that we had great breakthroughs in AI, you know, kind of like, you know, intelligent machine, you know, Watson beats humans, Google car can now drive, you know, because it's so smart. No, actually it turns out the real secret, uh, Peter Norvig said, we don't have better algorithms, we just have more data. What data? It turns out that Google Street View cars were recording every street. You know, they had very detailed images, very detailed measurements. You know, one of the things that Peter said, it's a very hard AI problem to pick, for example, a traffic light out of a field of view of a camera. But it's trivial to figure out if it's red or green if you already know that it's there. So in some sense, the secret sauce of the Google Autonomous Vehicle is the recorded memory of augmented human street view drivers. You know, they had people drive those roads. They were equipped with all these very, very powerful sensors, and that memory was recorded in the cloud. You know, so uh, this is actually, you know, again, a collective intelligence application. Uh, you know, so it's AI plus the recorded memory of augmented humans. And that's really my point. The global brain is us, connected and augmented. And again, this was something that was articulated pretty early on in the computer industry by guys who just really thought far ahead of the box. A JCR Licklider was the DARPA program manager who actually funded the original work on TCPIP. But in 1960, he wrote a book called Man-Computer Symbiosis. And uh, he wrote, The hope is that in not too many years, human brains and computing machines will be coupled together very tightly and that the resulting partnership will think as no human brain has ever thought and will process data in a way not approached by the information handling machines we know today. You know, so when you see uh, something like Google, which uses 
you know, millions of links made by distributed individuals uncoordinated and uses them to predict the best result. When you see, uh, you know, this Google Street View vehicle uh, somehow fueling an autonomous robot car, you're starting to see elements of this man-computer symbiosis. So when I say we're building a network-mediated global mind, you know, I really am saying it's us, you know, connected and augmented. It's not an AI. It's really a set of technologies that connect us in new ways, in the same way that language connected us in a new way. Writing connected us in a new way. And now we have a whole set of technologies that are connecting us in new ways. We have a shared uh, memory now in the cloud. We have a, um, a shared um, you know, communications network. We have in increasingly rapid ability for information to leap from mind to mind. We also have a lot uh, of new tools for creating feedback loops. Uh, this first showed up in the area of, of advertising. Uh, you know, John Wanamaker, the, the department store magnate, you know, from the late 1800s, famously said, uh, you know, uh, half of my advertising doesn't work. The only problem is I don't know which half. And if you look at what happened, uh, you know, with Google pay-per-click advertising, they were largely able to figure out which part of the advertising works. They were able to build predictive analytics and say, oh, we actually can close the loop and say, yeah, that one worked, that one didn't. And they outperformed their competitors because they didn't actually just sell ads to the highest bidder. They actually were able to predict which ads would be most likely to be clicked on. So they were, again, harnessing all kinds of information from the millions of people who were coming to the site in order to predict better what was going to happen, collective intelligence at work. But this uh, notion of uh, you know, solving the Wanamaker problem applies in other areas. I just published a paper called Solving the Wanamaker Problem for Healthcare, which is about all the different ways that we're starting to think about uh, how we can create new data-driven feedback loops and collective intelligence to apply to problems in healthcare. And that's everything from what the Affordable Care Act is trying to do with medical reimbursements uh, to new uh, strides in, in medical diagnostics. Uh, you know, Pascal Witz, who's uh, the head of GE Medical Diagnostics, you know, pointed out that only 1% of healthcare spend now goes to diagnosis. You know, we kind of do it at the beginning and then we... Um, you know, we kind of do treatment and that's the end of it. But the new model is, no, no, we actually are testing all the time. You know, we try something, did it work, did it not? We're really understanding how to create data feedback loops and actually solve that Wanamaker problem in healthcare. We're starting to see it in cities. You know, um, SF Park is trying to build sort of sensor network, uh, you know, um, networked uh, um, parking meters that will actually understand what the city wants to do in terms of availability of parking spaces, um, you know, this is really the future of the, the smart city. I got this really fascinating uh, slide, uh, uh, sort of image uh, from Wired magazine uh, last year of 24 hours of New York City 311 calls. You know, we're starting to see this sort of electronic sensorium, which is really, again, not just an electronic sensorium. It's an electronic sensorium that is collecting the intelligence and the, and the output of, of humans. You know, so we are the input to the system. And the system is giving us new ways to collect our uh, common activity. You know, a really interesting project at, uh, uh, you know, the Sensible City Project at MIT, where they built sort of live Singapore in that whole sensor uh, world. There's a lot of innovation happening in that space. 
Uh, and it's really useful to put it in this frame of man-machine symbiosis and um, new models for collective intelligence. Big piece of this, of course, is this new area called data science. Um, you know, we, we have a conference called Strata, which is focused on the techniques for literally extracting collective intelligence from large amounts of the data exhaust of humans. Another really key point that's, that's coming out right now is how important it is that this data be real-time. Uh, Jeff Jonas uh, at IBM Entity Analytics, uh, this wonderful commercial that he wrote, uh, that he, he, he did uh, for IBM uh, a couple of years ago, you know, we said, would you be willing to cross the street with information that was you know, a minute old? Of course, the answer is no. And we're, so we are increasingly technology driving us towards taking data from humans, extracting meaning from it in very close to real time. Uh, but there's another aspect to this uh, story of human-computer symbiosis, and that's something that uh, Vannevar Bush in his famous 1945 article, uh, As We May Think, called Intelligence Augmentation. You know, this piece uh, really was a fantastic prediction of the World Wide Web and what we see in technology today. You know, he said the human mind operates by association. With one item in its grasp, it snaps instantly to the next that is suggested by the association of thoughts in accordance with some intricate web of trails carried by the cells of the brain. Uh, and he said, man cannot hope fully to duplicate this mental process artificially, but he certainly ought to be able to learn from it. And he says, one cannot hope to equal the speed and flexibility with which the mind follows an associative trail, but it should be possible to beat the mind decisively in regard to the permanence and clarity of the items resurrected from storage. Of course, that's true. Uh, you know, you can Google, and in three clicks, you can actually read Vannevar Bush's 1945 article. You know, um, and of course, in our smartphones, uh, we're, we're, we're really experiencing this next uh, you know, aspect of of, you know, Vannevar Bush's vision of this information retrieval, intelligence augmentation by our ability to effectively have an outboard brain. How many of you actually refer to your phone as your outboard brain? And, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, of course, you know, even in areas like, um, you know, Watson, which they're now trying to, you know, retarget from um, Jeopardy to healthcare. Uh, you know, you have this, the real, the, what this really is, is, is a vast information retrieval machine for getting at the work product of human intelligence. You know, uh, I, I was meeting with uh, one of the people on the Watson team, and he, he made the point that Watson just reads all the scientific papers that, uh, you know, all the med medical papers that other people can't get to. And it then sort of says, uh, wow, you know, have you thought about this, doctor, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Randy Cohn, the IBM doctor, who, the doctor who's working on this program, he says, Watson makes suggestions, not decisions. But his point was that it, uh, in the three seconds that it takes to come up, you know, come up with the answer to a Jeopardy question, it has time to process the equivalent of 200 million pages. You know, that's, um, you know, really this incredible uh, power of, of, of uh, recollection and memory you know, being made possible through this uh, new kind of man-machine symbiosis. And, of course, when you consider something like Google Glass, the promise is that it will, in fact, become kind of a UI for this kind of information retrieval, you know, where you have uh, massive systems uh, that are using really interesting predictive analytics to figure out what information, again, information produced as the sum total of, of uh, 
human intellectual output, you know, uh, retrieved and brought to the fore. Now, you might think, oh, this is just a curiosity, uh, you know, and I, I'd never wear one of those. And I, but, but, you know, this notion of augmented humans uh, really comes up again in, in an unexpected con- context. I want to point out to you uh, the Apple Store as an example. You guys think about, you know, I assume most of you have been in an Apple Store and have bought something there. And you know how many more clerks there are in an Apple Store than, you know, usually everybody's using automation to get rid of people. And somehow Apple turned that on its head and it's using automation to build retail clerks with superpowers. You know, where they, they, you know, that you walk up and they, you know, they scan your device, they swipe your credit card, and bing, you're, you're done. You know, or if you've tried uh, you know, Square's Pay With Square application, you, know, you literally can now walk into a store and say, you know, say your name, and uh, you know, your credit card will automatically be debited. This is a really interesting. We're actually building new kinds of augmentation, uh, new kinds of human-computer symbiosis. And the real notion here is that exploring the possibility space of human-computer symbiosis is really one of the, the, the fascinating frontiers of the next uh, few decades and quite possibly the next century. Now, one question I've started asking myself is, what does the economy of the future look like? Uh, in their recent book, The Race Against the Machine, uh, Eric Brynolfsson and Andy McAfee make the case that you know, many of the jobs that have gone away are not coming back. We are, in fact, automating more and more kinds of jobs. And you know, you just take this Google autonomous vehicle. If that comes out, you know, there go taxi drivers, there go truck drivers, uh, you know, and you just repeat that across the economy. And you ask yourself, well, well what is, so what does the future economy look like as we take away more and more of the, of the you know, formerly menial jobs? And you can say all you like, well, you'll just have to move up the food chain and do more intellectual work. I do think that that Apple Store example gives you, uh, you know, a really interesting um, framework for thinking how you can make even relatively low-skilled jobs and actually upskill them through human-computer uh, symbiosis. You know, uh, I think uh, in addition to you know, retailers like Apple, you'll see that in home healthcare, uh, where people you can easily imagine you know a combination of sensors, uh, deep data backends, and then you know pe- humans providing the the high touch uh, front end uh, as a, a future economic model. But it's really important to, to think about this because you know. Our economy actually depends on a virtuous cycle. It's just like the water cycle or uh, anything else from ecology. The economy also depends on a cycle. You need customers as well as uh, job uh, you know, and product providers. Uh, in a talk he gave at Ted U earlier this year, Nick Hanauer uh, made a wonderful case. He said, I'm a very successful capitalist. But I want to tell you, you know, there's a big lie out there, and that's that capital creates jobs. He said, customers create jobs. And if, you know, people don't have enough money to be customers, no amount of capital and no amount of entrepreneurial ingenuity will allow you to succeed. 
And so he, he kind of gave this uh, you know, voice to this ecosystem thinking. And so that's why I started asking myself, well, gosh, if Andy McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson are right and we're taking away a lot of the you know, jobs, we're going to see, you know, is our future one of more and more income inequality? You know, and there's basically a set of high-skilled people and then a bunch of low-skilled people who, who kind of are down in the gutter. And you go, no, we've got to figure out that future economy. So I started thinking about some different areas uh, uh, about how that might look. And, you know, there, there are many, many different angles, but I just do want to focus on one, and that is uh, the creative economy. You know, you might think, well, that's just, you know, kind of um, the world that we're all part of. You know, someone like Stuart or Kevin writes a great book and other people read it, and uh, they get paid somehow. But, uh, um, you know, Cory Doctorow had this vision that I, I really loved in his first book, down out in the magic kingdom for something he called the adhocracy. And he really described what he called an attention economy. There was actually an attention currency called woofy, uh, you know, which was you know, just like, hey, do people like what you're doing? Well, it kind of turns out we're starting to see that. You know, what is Kickstarter but kind of like the alpha of that system? You know, I'm doing something cool. Would you support me in it? And it's a sort of a hack for uh, translating over from the attention economy into this real, you know, this sort of monetary economy. But even Kickstarter may not be the most interesting example. I've gotten really fascinated by YouTube recently because uh, it struck me that YouTube may actually be closer to having the real business model for the attention economy than, you know, Facebook or Twitter. Uh, this particular uh, video is one that uh, my grandson, my three-year-old grandson likes to watch, along with uh, something like, you know, it's been watched something like 24 million times. It's a video made by a five-year-old and his dad of uh, his Thomas the Tank Engine uh, train crashes. You know, he kind of has this big complicated train set and he shows how he crashes his train engine in various ways. And, you know, Huck loves to, to watch this. Uh, it's, it's, you know, what Yokai Benkler calls peer production, you know, and it seems like it's sort of silly, you know, but um, what's sort of interesting is that there is a real economy growing up here, and it's actually technology mediated. So I went down to learn more about this. I went down to a conference called VidCon, which is sort of the gathering place of the YouTube creator uh, community. And it was kind of like going back to the early days of the Beatles. There were literally thousands of screaming kids when YouTube stars came out on stage. And... Uh, <laughs> This is actually, you know, a line of fans waiting to get an autograph from a, you know, 20-something, you know, British kid, Charlie McDonald, who has a, you know, very popular YouTube channel. It was interesting. It was also, you know, crawling with agents who used to be focused on Hollywood and they're now focused on YouTube. But what's really interesting is, you know, when you kind of understand how YouTube monetizes... So interesting. This is a is a, a pretty popular video. It's been watched 15 million times. But what's really interesting is there's a music soundtrack. You notice I circled down there. It says contains content from uh, you know I think it's Dig Dis or something like that. I don't even know who that is. But Google auto detects when there's copyrighted content attached to a video. And you know you kind of think well in the original you know business model that Hollywood wanted was like take that stuff down. You know, well, what's really happening is they actually pay the artists and the music companies. You know, so I heard a fascinating story about a pop star who I won't name, who now actually makes more money on YouTube than on iTunes. 
and most of the money the star makes is actually not from you know, videos and tracks that are put up there by the studios, but from tracks that are put up by, you know, from videos that are put up by individuals who just happen to use this person's music uh, as a soundtrack. Google auto detects, and the money doesn't go to the person who put up the video, it goes to the music company. So there's this really interesting native, you know, um, you know, attention economy where people make a video. You know, somebody's wedding video has 50 million views and some artist suddenly magically made a whole bunch of money because somebody made something new in this remix culture that got used. And I think that's sort of an interesting, uh, you know, aspect of, of how this sort of future collective intelligence, you know, may monetize in a world without traditional jobs. It may be that really is, that we are starting to see the beginnings of that attention economy. Now, I call these peer production economies uh, clothesline paradox economies in homage to a, a paper that uh, Stewart published in 1975 called The Clothesline Paradox uh, by Steve Baer. And, uh, you know, Steve basically was talking about solar energy at the time. You know, he, he, he basically said, we get all these ecosystem services for free and, uh, you know, we forget about it. You know, you put your clothes in the dryer and the energy used gets measured and counted, you put your clothes out on the clothesline, and it seems to just disappear from the economy. And I started thinking about this in the context, for example, of open source software, which is really one of the first uh, and most robust peer economies that you know, a lot of us have studied and been a part of. You know, and I thought about that, and I said, wow, you know, everybody thinks, wow, you know, there's a couple of companies that tried to make money off of open source software, like Red Hat or Cloudera, and they've done okay, but not really a big market. Then you look a little downstream and you say, oh, wow, you know, companies like Google and Twitter and Facebook, well, they were built on top of open source software, so there's this further downstream market. But then this, this um, next piece I got from this guy named Hari Ravachandran from a company called Endurance International Group, which is the largest uh, web hosting company in the U.S. He said, well, we're all built on open source. You know, so you start thinking about it and you go, wow, people pay, you know, 80 or 90 bucks a month, you know, for web hosting and the like. And, yeah, you know, uh, actually, actually, I take it back. I'm, I'm mixing up my, you actually pay six or seven bucks a month for your, you know, domain name and your, your, you know, potentially not very much for your web hosting. And effectively, you're getting subscription access to open source software. Uh, but one of the things that Harry said, he said, you know, the real impact of what I do is that all these small businesses are able to have a web presence. And McKinsey has done a study that, you know, uh, shows 10% improvement in productivity of a small business with a website. So you start seeing how this peer economy of people sharing free software turned into all this economic activity somewhere else. And I've been thinking that that's really a model for how this next economy is going to emerge. People are going to do things just because it feels good to share. And then someone is going to figure out how to monetize that sharing. And it's going to be indirect and surprising in the same way that, uh, you know, the impact of open source software has been indirect and surprising. Uh, you know, we need to actually start thinking about how do we measure an economy in which value is created but not captured by the people who create it. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because uh, I look at what happened in 2008 with, you know, our financial system going off the rails, uh, you know, companies that 
we're able to extract a great deal of value from the system without creating any. And then at the other extreme, you see people, you know, working like Tim Berners-Lee, you know, creating the web, giving it away, putting it in the public domain, open source software, creating all this value but not capturing very much of it. And it goes in that same way as, you know, solar energy into the ecosystem that we're all living in. And it is, in fact, monetized elsewhere. So, um, you know, Lisa Gansky has a site called The Mesh, uh, which is really looking at the sharing economy. She now identifies almost 7,000 companies that are trying different kinds of business models in that uh, sharing economy. I, I think it's going to be a really fascinating, uh, you know, uh, exploration of the future. You know, we we have these new kinds of ways that we're connecting, sharing, uh, building work product that is inherently collective, uh, that comes from our shared attention. We see these sort of thoughts that are going across this global brain and some of them are worth keeping and some of them aren't. Uh, our old methods for you know, saying what was important are, are, are giving way to new ones. Uh, but what is still true is that um, there's a kind of, of um, you know, generosity and joy in creation that I like to think will still be a key part of the future. Um, uh, Rodney Mullen, uh, who's one of the fathers of street skating, he was a, you know, usually successful skateboarder in the early days when it was a professional sport. But then he kind of was the guy who invented a lot of the tricks out on the, on the street. And uh, he gave a talk at, um, um, I think it was uh, TEDxUSC. Uh, and he, he has this sort of wonderful thing. He says, you know, fame and money lose their allure. You know, um, you know he, he quoted Richard Feynman saying, you know, a Nobel Prize is the graveyard of a scientific career. Uh, you know, but then, then he said what really has survived for him, you know, he'd built a company and sold it and he'd done all these things, but he said what's really wonderful, he said there's an intrinsic value to creating something for the sake of creating it. And there's this beauty in dropping it into a community of your own making and seeing it dispersed and seeing younger talent take it to levels you could never imagine because that lives on. I start thinking about that as something to aspire to in this future global brain, and that is that beauty of sharing. And that's why I wanted to remind you in closing of what I said earlier about what might be the hallmark of that next stage of human consciousness, which is creativity and the idea that reality is an activity of the most august imagination. And I invite you, as you go forward into the future, to you know, share what you do very profusely because it will be remixed by others into something new, rich, and strange. And that is the world that we're building together. Thank you. to the bar. Okay. Gin or vodka? <laughs> Kevin Kelly says, should we have a backup for the global brain and, you know, in case it crashes? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's going to be really interesting. Uh, the one thing I would, would say about that is uh, 
you know, I've actually given versions of this talk where my last slide is, uh, you know, we've only got one world now, we better get it right. Uh, because I do think that's one of the issues. I think about that in the context of an argument I've had with Ray Kurzweil over the singularity. You know, one of the differences uh, in today's world relative to, you know, sort of the past is that the torch could pass from one region of the world to another. You know, you could have stagnation in, you know, one area for a thousand years while civilization was progressing somewhere else and then it kind of comes back and there's an ebb and flow. Uh, but we really, as we build this one global civilization, you know, when, if we have a crash, uh, and, and history tells us that often there are crashes, uh, you know, that really isn't somewhere else to kind of be still progressing and you know, come back and pick up the torch. It really is, is a, a crash for everyone. And I do think that's a, it's a pretty serious concern. So what do you do about that? I mean, panic sounds like the first thing. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, there's one part of me, I, I try to be philosophical about it uh, because, and actually I remember this uh, story my brother James told me about uh, a, a trip he was on in Antarctica and was a conversation with, uh, you know, a geologist and uh, someone was in a panic about what was going to happen to the world. And he, he said, oh, oh, the world will be fine. It's us you should be worrying about. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, I do think sometimes that uh, uh, whatever is happening is bigger than we are and we just have to take it in stride. Paul Oppenheim asks, what is the role of privacy in the global mind? Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about privacy, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that the way we're thinking about it now is wrong, and in particular, the way that privacy activists are thinking about it now is wrong. There's so much utility that will only come from shared data that we can't kind of roll back the clock and say, oh, no, no, we're going to keep this stuff secret. And instead, we need to move to a regime that's much more like the way we handle uh, something like insider trading. You know, there's no problem with you knowing absolutely anything, but in certain contexts, you just cannot use it if you know it. And so it's much more around, well, what are the contexts? What are also, what are the norms? You know, how do we, you know, sort of uh, punish bad behavior as opposed to regimes that say, somehow we've got to lock this up behind some Maginot wall where people can't get at it. You know, we've just got to say, you know, you can, it's too easy to reconstruct data from, you know, so many so- sources. You know, as we are connected... Uh, constantly with devices that are putting out all kinds of data exhaust, it's almost impossible for us to keep certain kinds of secrets. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't certain you know, things that you can really work at keeping secret, but in general, a lot of data that's previously been thought of as private will become uh, you know, public and shared, and we're going to just have to figure out you know, what can you do with it if you have it versus what can you not do with it. I've heard that healthcare in uh, places like Germany, for example, are somewhat crippled by the fact that healthcare data is not shared as much as it should be. That's right. I, I think Europe's going to really shoot, is really shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, so is this uh, another yet another shadow of Nazi regime and communist regimes and things like that? that no, no, I don't think that. I, I think it's much more um, you know, analogous to you know, say, you know, uh, book publishers or, or you know, music companies trying to. You know, uh, you know, play King Canute and hold back the tide, uh, and meanwhile, the world moves on. 
you know, and I, I think it's really more that they're going to be left behind than that they're going to succeed. So who are the confident in sharing in not-so-privacy uh, paranoid societies versus the ones that are? Well, I, I don't think anybody has really, you know, figured it out right. I think, you know, certainly not at a sort of overall society level. I do think there are a lot of uh, experiments that are going on where people are building really interesting, useful services that depend on data exhaust and this notion of, of collective intelligence. And people are using them, and the market is, um, you know, getting smarter about that. And the best thing that governments can do is stay out of the way, at least Seems for right like now. And, 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 you know, and look for, well, you know, figure out what are actual harms and, you know, figure out how to protect against those harms rather than somehow try to control the flow of information. Actual harms. What yeah. a thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as opposed to imagined harms, which That's are right. so much more wonderful to contemplate. Yeah, well, certainly for politicians, imagined <laughs> harms. Uh, so it, uh, is Iceland an example of a place that, I mean, they made their genomic data basically of the whole country available. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was I, part I, of a business deal, but it's also part of a governance deal and worked out well. Yeah, it seems to make sense to me. Yeah. Okay, we'll watch that one. All right, Ben Morrow asks, what are major frictions that you think impede the growth and expansion of this global consciousness? Well, um, I think, you know, I think the, the whole privacy discussion is mm -hmm. certainly one of them. I, I think the, um, you know, probably the thing I worry most about is that we're not applying uh, our collective intelligence enough to hard, interesting problems. You know that we're applying it to trivialities. Uh, you know, Jeff Hammerbacher, who was uh, an early Facebooker, you know, said the best minds of my generation are trying to get people to click on ads, and you know that's you know that's you know kind of a real obstacle. And that's why I've been out there. Well, that's give better a lot than starving hysterical naked. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's why a lot of the talks I give, I, I, I you know try to urge people to work on stuff that matters. Yeah. You know? And they respond, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of yeah, there's stuff a, yeah, that matters there's a lot. Out But there. again, part of what we, I think, need to do is to celebrate the people who are, uh, you know, using this new superpower for good. And celebration is easier because of all this connectivity. Yeah. And at YouTube, they will be yeah, yeah. Uh, have a line of people waiting to Hopefully. admire yeah. them. Kevin Kelly asks, what might be the downside and costs of global symbiosis? Uh, P.S. Will there be an escape button? Yeah, uh, I, I see. Uh, you know, I, I guess I would just sort of say, first off, uh, you know, there's, there are huge downsides. Um, at the same time, there's huge upsides. You know, I, I think very much of, of that wonderful story from Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, you know, in the, in the opening section, you know, Yaley's question. I, I don't remember if I got the quote exactly right, but he's, you know, he says, you know, how come you guys have all the stuff? You're so dumb, you know? <laughs> and, you know, and the fact is, you know, we have actually, I think we're going to have other, you know, issues like that where there will be people who will be opting out of this sort of future society and they're going to have certain virtues, you know, just like, hey, it's pretty great to live close to the land and not be connected and so on, and then there's, but there's other advantages. You know, well, was, you when I was looking back to the 70s, a lot of us tried that. And, yeah, I know. It, you know, it, it, it has its drawbacks, anymore. yeah. I, I will say this. Uh, you know, my, my, uh, my older brother, when I was a kid, used to refer to me as the failed hunter-gatherer. You know? <laughs> you know? 
I would say you're nothing but a hunter-gatherer. But, but, but the, the notion really being of, you know, like, and I just think about this, I was this blind kid who used to literally, I struck out a kickball when I was in third grade, you know, which is pretty hard to do, you know. <laughs> you know, but, I, but you know, I, you know I, I had different skills. And I think in a similar way, we're going to actually have, um, you know, we're going to have some different kinds of societies, some of which are more highly networked, in which people are going to, you know, become different, you know. Uh, uh, you know, back to the failed hunter-gatherer, you know, it's like, you know, we have people who learn to read and then they couldn't do things like ride a horse and fight with a sword or sh shoot a bow and arrow and, you know, or track down a, you know, uh, an animal in the hunt, but they could do something else. And I think a lot of our future is to say, well, we don't know what, you know, we'll need to be good at, uh, but we can be pretty sure that it, it will be very different than what we needed to be good at. At least some parts of it will be very different than what we needed to be good at in the past. So this may be hmm, different metaphors here. There's global mind and global brain, which, by yeah, the way, yeah. I, I kept thinking is what you were going to talk about. I'm so disappointed. Okay, well, <laughs> let's uh, talk about it now. <laughs> um, and one possible distinction, uh, I bet Marvin Minsky wouldn't agree, is that the brain is someone of there, there's uh, anatomy of the brain. Mm -hmm. Different parts do different things. Yeah. Two sides, parts manage vision. There's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the mind feels more like a, one big bowl of jello. So, hmm, a global mind slash brain uh, would regions, in some sense, specialize. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's a metaphor. First off, you know, uh, I, I, the main point that I, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to make is when we think about uh, the future of kind of a, a, a you know, future artificial intelligence, you know, whatever, it's, it's sort of like this, this AI. And Sounds like you're saying it's not artificial anymore. I don't think it's, it's artificial. Us. It really is us. It's yeah. like we are beca becoming a multicellular organism in a new way. You know, it's, it's getting, you know, at a certain point, this, this uh, process of, hmm. you know, communication uh, becomes sufficiently intense the structure becomes uh, sufficient that we actually become something qualitatively different. And, you know, you can look at, um, you know, again, this notion that, that a, a meme can spread. You know, how long did it take for that uh, Sanka brand color to mean decaffeinated? I don't know, but I imagine it was a number of years, and it still hasn't spread everywhere. Uh, you know, Twitter memes, you know, spread can spread in a flash worldwide. Um, you know, of course, that could happen in the days of, of, you know, mass media as well. But I think it's happening much faster. Um, Can you imagine a pantheon of Greek gods of uh, this noosphere that you're describing? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, who's there? What do they stand for? Aphrodite is alive and well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, pornography rules the net. In yeah, case. yeah. No, it's, a, it's a, a really good point. And this really goes back to your, your question of subsystems. You know. the, the very first cave art was all pussy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 40,000 years of it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually a lot, a, a lot, a lot of... I'm sorry I distracted a you. Lot, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of hunting imagery as well. I, I remember this fabulous line from Zane Gray where he said, man was born to roam, to hunt, and to slay. You know, <laughs> you know there's that whole, that whole, you know, the... Uh, uh, 
Uh, anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the gods of the global consciousness, yeah. who are they? Well, um, and goddesses. Hmm. Interesting. Well, they're probably the, the same old ones. You know, there's uh, certainly a goddess of wisdom. When I was uh, kind of growing up, you know, as a kid, you know, reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, I, I was, you know, Athena was always my favorite, the goddess of wisdom. How does she get expressed in the, uh, currently? I think that um, I'm probably here in the long now. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, how 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 is how's the, that's a really good question. I have to think about that. How do we uh, sort of express that that quality of uh, sagacity and insight? Um, Jonas Salk had a, a definition of wisdom as the ability to look forward as if backward. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Um, you took take, took that at heart here. Uh, it's a really good question of is that still is that something that we actually have only still as individuals do we actually have collective wisdom? I think it's probably a good argument to say that what we have right now uh, are expressions of probably lower impulses. You know, we don't have, you know, we have kind of that that sort of impulse and sensation and the interest of things, you know, are what are driving us. Um, you know, this certainly... There's some pretty vicious yeah. gods of old. Oh, no question. And are there vicious expressions one can see from this kind of... Oh, oh, no question. I mean, you, 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 you look at how, uh, you know, hate spreads just as easily as anything else. You see, uh, you know, kind of... Our next speaker, Steven Pinker, will say yeah. the record shows that basically hate and justice, violence and so on keep going down. Mm-hmm. And that may map against the uh, increasingly connectedness of that could uh, be people every which way. Yeah. In which case, I mean, what you're always looking for is think that everything's going to have good and bad expressions. You know, mm-hmm. as Kevin Kelly likes to say, as long as 51 percent are expressions you're glad of, and that plays out over time, you win. Mm-hmm. And you think these things that you're describing have that quality? Uh, you know, I guess I would say that um, you know neither. Uh, I, I think the, the you know just as there are good and bad individuals, there are going to be good and bad impulses in all of us. I don't know what will predominate, you know, and I, I suspect that uh, what predominates will actually go through a range of possibilities. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, for example, I was in, in um, Istanbul last year and kind of just immersing myself in a little bit of, of, of history there. And I thought, how odd is it that there was a culture that survived for, you know, quite a long time in which the way that they, you know, you succeeded to the leadership was by killing your brothers, uh-huh. you know, and the one who survived was the next ruler. I mean, it's like, what a foreign culture, you know. So you look at the range of human experience of what we consider to be normal at one time or place. It's pretty wild. And I think in a similar way, you know, as, you know, we look forward uh, into this, you know, increasingly connected future, uh, there are going to be things that are going to seem very, very unfamiliar to us and very strange. Demetrius Nealon asks, uh, how do you see the field of information architecture changing 
relative to collective intelligence. You know, what are the O'Reilly uh, well, <laughs> books the, of the future on the, the developing yeah, apparatus? I, I think the thing that I, I would just say as, as a sort of framing metaphor, uh, the notion that you want to build systems uh, that are affordances for collective intelligence is probably the, the you know kind of the key principle. And, and you know, as I gave a, a number of examples, not in, in, in really a coherent list, um, but as I said, you know, exploring the possibility space. You know, when you think about, you know, the Apple Store and the Google Autonomous Vehicle as two different expressions of collective intelligence, you go, wow. You know, you would never have thought of that. And so for me, information architecture is, you know, kind of how do you define and, you know, capture, you know, the, you know, the design of these kinds of systems. You know, I think uh, on the web, uh, we, we figured out quite a few design patterns for collective intelligence. You know, like, okay, you get people to review and rate and, mm. uh, you know, share. Uh, but... You know, there's new and surprising developments all the time. You know, the, the whole notion, for example, that Kickstarter had of, you know, kind of harnessing, well, this will only get funded if you, you know, there were ways of doing crowdfunding before, but they kind of, they, they got it just right, you know, so that it happened to work. Um, there's know, so, so many hmm, kind uh, of good uh, so, surprises like Kickstarter. Yeah. And so few really scary surprises. This sounds like better than 51%. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, the, 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 but again, I would I, I wouldn't entirely go that far. Like if you look at the scale of the bad surprises, uh, they're probably greater. You know, take take the financial crisis. That is sort of a sickness in the global brain. Uh-huh. You know, the financial system, uh, you know, is actually ahead of the consumer internet in sort of harnessing you know collective data, uh, building these synthet- synthetic instruments that work again at t- turning bots loose to you know, do things with that data. And they basically used it to basically rip the rest of the world off. Sure. And, uh, you know, so I, I kind of look at that and I go, there, there's a really good example of a, of a pretty serious pathology, uh, you know, in the global brain. I think I look at, at Goldman Sachs and I go, they're certainly one of the, um, hmm. you know, the avatars, if you like, of, of, uh, of the global brain gone wrong. And, and, I would love to see, uh, you know, when I when I see these wonderful efforts, you know, where, you know, we're trying to harness collective intelligence to solve, you know, disease or, you know. Um, How do you debug problems like the the financial? I mean, part of what they seem to have done has gone beyond real time into surreal time of yeah, you know, yeah. the nano uh, range of trades and so on. Uh, well, I, so as a programmer or a person who you know helps programmers program a better world how do you approach a systemic problem like that yeah. in the global consciousness that turns out to be problematic how do you well, detect I, I, and undo I, I, the bug I, I think in some sense you need you really start to have to you know re-engineer the whole system you know what's really happening is that uh, you know, financial players are, are really gaming the system and there's really nobody in charge to fix the system. Uh, you know, do we... And what you've just l- described is a system which will not 
even remotely permit anything or anybody to be in charge. Right. You know, so you kind of look at that and you go, do you, do you end up have to have a really bad crash and then somebody builds it over? You know, I, one of the things that's really interesting to me, mm -hmm. I, I've been thinking about this it, term I use is algorithmic regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at, at say, the way that uh, spam is regulated on the Internet, that's, you know, the beginnings of a, you know, kind of a, um, an immune system response to a pathogen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it works a lot like, you know, biology. You know, there's basically you recognize the signature of something new and hostile and, you, and you, you know, you fix it. You, um, you know, so there's this constant uh, search for homeostasis in some sense. And you compare that to how government regulation works. And you go, well, it's just, you know, it's badly broken. You know, somebody puts out some rules uh, and there's no method of enforcement. You know, I think ultimately, you know, the financial system needs to be algorithmically regulated in the same way that spam is regulated on the internet. You kind of you, you kind of say, what are the outcomes that we want, and uh, and then you you basically manage to that. You know, good, good example of this. I I, I I remember having a conversation with Nancy Pelosi not long after Google did their Panda search update, and it was sort of in the context of SOPA, PIPA, and all all that that kind of stuff, and. Best to see what SOPA. Oh, uh, SOPA Stop Online Piracy Act, you know, which was this sort of attempt to get, uh, you know, Congress to, you know, put out new intellectual property laws, to uh, quote strengthen IP on the internet, and, and it was interesting. Uh, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi kind of said, "Well, you know, we have to satisfy the interests of the uh, technology industry and and the movie industry." And I thought, no, you don't. You have to get the right answer. You know, <laughs> you know sort of like I, I, I just uh, so I, the reason I mentioned the Google Panda search update, which is when they sort of downgraded a lot of the people who were you know building these content farms and putting out low quality content in order to get you know you know page views and clicks uh, in order to make money and not to satisfy the users. And I thought, gosh, what if Google had said, oh yeah, yeah, we have to sit down with demand media and satisfy their concerns. We have to make sure that 30% of at least 30% of the you know, the search results are crappy uh, so that their business model is preserved. You know, you know. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd say, wait, no, no, we have to get it right. And I, I feel like, you know, we don't actually have a government that actually understands that it is, you know, has to be building a better platform, you know, uh, that, that starts to manage things like that. And, you know, with the best outcome for the, you know, the real users, you know. So the founding fathers... Um, were programmers. They were absolutely. This uh, elaborate yeah. cybernetic yeah, yeah. system with tags and balances yeah, yeah. and all this cool stuff. And you're wading into dot .gov and yeah, cities yeah. and things like that. Uh, say a little bit about uh, why and how and what the future of uh, adjusting governance might be. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that we're, we're reaching a point where the way we've governed ourselves is fairly broken. You know, it, it hasn't scaled very well. Uh, and in particular, the, you know, uh, you know, dominated by special interests and the like. And, and, you know, it's really clear. We actually need to come up with some new mechanisms that actually harness some of this collective intelligence for purposes of, of, uh, of, of government. And I think that is going to be one of the great challenges. But isn't that democracy sort of, you know, the, the Greeks invented it. And yeah. it sort of works. And that's it, right? Game over. Well, you know, it sort of works. 
the question is, we don't necessarily really have a democracy. We don't really have even have a republic anymore. We have a plutocracy. And, uh, you know, I think we do need to fix that. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we actually are going to find is that, um, you know, we don't necessarily uh, fix it all at once. We fix it in pieces. Cities? And, yeah, and I think in cities is, is one place that you fix it. Yeah, and I, I think um, that we have to actually start, you know, moving, I guess, you know, moving away from the notion that politics really has very much to do with governance. You know, we, you know to the extent that we can fix things without politics, we'll be much better off. I mean, Jen Polka likes to say that, uh, you know, you know, governments this vast ocean and politics is a six-inch layer on top. And, you know, cha- changing the, our political leadership is a little bit like changing the font on a menu and thinking that you've actually re-engineered the system. Uh, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we really have, you know, we, you know, you know uh, what she's trying to do with Code for America is to actually get in there and start building new systems, uh, you know, for engagement, new systems for uh, opening up data. Again, it's really working at a very small scale right now, but ultimately I think, you know, government is going to have to become a player in this global brain. And we actually are having a lot of success in that in some ways at the federal level here in the U.S. You know, you look at what uh, Todd Park, the federal CTO, is trying to do with, uh, you know, opening up government data, uh, you know, in the area of health care. You know, I have to say, you know, the Affordable Care Act is a real attempt, actually, to use data to build feedback systems uh, uh, so that we actually have better outcomes. You know, there's this huge experiment or set of experiments to actually try to build government programs that, you know, work uh, in this way that I've been describing. How do you get... I mean, the major thing about writing code is detecting and heading off bugs. Yeah. This is not the standard in government. You write your law... Uh, we're going to uh, boycott Cuba for the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what would be a way to, to uh, I mean, sunset laws would have been one attempt at that. But is there a way to, the, the Constitution had a whole bunch of really important amendments shortly yeah. after it was written. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we left out some critical stuff and they put it in and made a big difference. Yeah. And then from... You know, more and more slowly, you can yeah, probably yeah. do a chart of how long it's been since one has had uh, a significant amendment. Yeah. And there's n- none uh, significant being offered now. Yeah. So what you see is a kind of a sclerotic yeah. uh, tightening up of the apparatus. It, yeah, although, you know, there's some good efforts, again, uh, in, in that direction. Cass Sunstein, who was at the office of, mm. forget, what is it, OIRA, I forget what it stands for, Office of something and regulatory. He's so, Mr. Nudge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, co-author with Dick Thaler of Nudge. Uh, you know, he led this really fascinating effort where they went around to every agent and said, we've got to, you, you, have a, you have to go identify regulations that are, you know, dumb and you need to clean out. And they've actually managed to clean out a lot of clutter. But I, I think that uh, that's really trimming around the edges. Uh, I think we actually need some fundamentally different approaches to regulation. You know, kind of in an odd way, the closest example that I've seen for government getting regulation right is with sort of a quasi-governmental uh, uh, quasi uh, uh, body, which is, is, is central banks. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually, the way they regulate hmm. is, is kind of like the way someone like Google regulates. They kind of say, I have an outcome in mind. I have a couple of knobs and levers. 
periodically I might get a few new knobs and levers and I tweak them you know, to get the outcome. You know, I don't just sort of say, well, this is the rule and I'm going to follow it regardless of whether it has a good outcome or a bad outcome. They go, no, no, we're supposed to basically, you know, keep interest rates at a certain level and we want to have, you know, various things that we want to have happen in the economy and we have a couple of levers and we keep tweaking them to see if we can get where we want to go. Okay, so you've been and talking. And I, I think, you know, that's really how I would love to see us start thinking about government regulatory processes. Okay, so we've been talking about the global mind. Yeah. We're not, we're, by the way, we're, we're far from, you know, truly global. You know, the point, though, is that... Uh, How does the global mind relate to global governance <laughs> dealing with global issues such as, for example, climate change, which is way too slow and strange for democracies so far to deal with very well? Yeah. Well, uh, in a lot of ways, the, quote, the market, as, uh, you know, The market's like even worse at dealing with climate change. Well, yes and no. Ah, uh, I, I think ultimately it will wake up. You know, there are a lot of players. You know, there's a lot of contending forces, no question. Uh, you know, I expect there will be... Uh, Diabolical money makers on climate change would want it to get a lot worse. Now that you folks are completely desperate, we yeah, got yeah, something yeah, that will help but, you yeah, fix but, this. But, but, It'll cost you, but no, we got it for you. I understand. You. But, you know, for example, insurance companies are going to be, you know, pulling on one side, start pushing on one side oh, pretty that's hard. That's interesting. That's a good one. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 th- I think of, you know, the question is, you know, it still may not be, you know, fast enough and it may be too late. But I, I do think that overall, uh, you know, there, there are some hopeful signs. You know, and, and I guess for me, you know, uh, the thing that bothers me the most is that, uh, you know, it, in an ideal world, you you do have a um, somebody who's exerting judgment. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the judgment that we tend to exhibit in government is generally pretty poor and captive to... You know, kind of looking back again to sort of to classics, you think about, you know, um, you know Plato's description of of um, you know virtue as uh, you know kind of this balance between the reason and you know this. You know, he basically had the you know, the mind as a charioteer with these two horses of you know one of of, of um, you know passion and one of. Uh, what the second one was, but you know, just sort of trying to trying to uh, you know get them to go in the direction you want to go. Uh, you know, as my brother James once said, you know, virtue is remembering what you really want. And uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, we have government that's kind of where the horses are driving the chariot, and there's no charioteer. Can I sense what Plato would make of current circumstances? I mean, he was kind of down on literacy. Well, yeah, Plato was kind of a nut job in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, and of course you never really know, you know, um, right. you know what was Socrates and what was Plato in there, you know. But Plato, for example, you know, believed in the enlightened despot, and he actually had uh, an experiment where Dionysius of Syracuse was his pupil, oh, and he, you know, he turned out to be an absolutely terrible ruler, and so. You know, Plato, when he tried to put his ideas of the ideal republic into practice, you know, produced a monster. Did so. Plato ever say, "Oops"? Uh, no, I don't think he did. But you know, Dionysius was the guy who actually. The, the, everybody's heard the story of the story of Damocles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Dionysius and his grand, uh, you know, his his prime minister, 
was uh, Damocles. And Damocles said, oh, how wonderful it must be to be a king. And you know, <laughs> that was when uh, he put him in the chair with the sword hanging over his head. He actually lived in Syracuse on his little palace. He had, he had his bedroom surrounded by a moat with a bridge that he could take up. You know, he was terrified that he was going to be, you know, be killed. He, he, uh, you know, he was really this sort of despot, and you know, yet he was here. He was, you know, Plato's star pupil. Last question, building on one from Kevin Kelly. Kevin says, "Will we be able to understand, manage, or steer a global intelligence that operates at a scale so far beyond ours, so far beyond our individual?" Um, I, I, I guess I think if you, if you take the analogy far enough, uh, there, there is no, you know, when you say we, you, you know, you're showing that you're thinking of us as individuals. And that's kind of like asking, you know, as we became multicellular organisms, you know, one of the cells says, hey, are we going to be able to control, you know, what this big multicellular organism does? And the answer is no, you're not, you know. And sorry, you're part of it, but you're not in charge anymore. And I think, you know, going back to that notion of the singularity, you know, it's this idea that there'll be this AI that we no longer control. No, I think it's going to be this, this, you know, this system that is beyond our control. And again, that goes back to, you know, really that, that 1958 essay, I Pencil. He's kind of saying, like, look, we're already there, you know, in making something like a pencil. You know, it's this collaborative activity spread all around the world. You read that essay and he goes, you know, I, my wood came from here and somebody here did this to me and somebody here did that to me and... No one person, you know, put this thing together. And I think increasingly you look at that out, you know, there's going to be a lot of activities that, you know, only exist collectively. And, you know, you, you know that kind of goes back to that privacy discussion. You kind of go, well, I want to take my data out and go home. Well, then, you, oh, well, you don't get any of these services because they only exist when you have a lot of people together. And, uh, you know, your data is only meaningful in context. You know, and this is kind of like, to, to, you know, the question of privacy again. You know, we're talking with uh, um, John Madison, who's the chief medical information officer at, uh, at Kaiser. You know, and he was kind of pointing out, like, well, we're, gonna, we're you know, not far from the point where you're going to want to have your complete genome as part of your medical record. And you go, that's great. But you know, it's really only useful if we can compare it to everybody else's. You mm-hmm. know? So it's you know, very well you can go, well, we could keep it sort of secret and locked up there, and you can only show. But you know, the fact is we've got to somehow actually... You know, for, to extract meaning from it, it's, it's going to be a collective you know, intelligence problem once again. And I think that the, you know, the, that really is the challenge, that that future uh, of, uh, of you know, collective intelligence applications is a future in which uh, the individual uh, that we prize so highly actually has less power, uh, except to the extent that that individual is able to create you know, new mind storms. I guess if I'd kind of uh, gotten further with this talk, you know, I might, I might have ended up kind of tying that, that thought of the creative economy into this, you know, how, how will we influence this global brain? You know, what we actually, the way we'll influence it is, is seen in the way that people create these kind of viral storms. Right now they're just around, oh, isn't that cool? You know, it's a funny cat video or it's a... Um, you know, or it's a political movement, whatever. But we're going to start getting good at that. You know, people will be able to command, uh, you know, vast amounts of attention and, uh, you know, uh, uh, direct, uh, you know, large groups of people through, you know, new mechanisms. I'm trying to think of the cell metaphor there. And you said, you know, the cells couldn't really complain. Uh, they're, yeah. they're not in charge of this larger entity. Um, 
the cells pretty much stay the way they are. Um, the cells of this entity, uh, people who engage, get into uh, activity with the global mind, are rewarded for it. Yeah. And that's why they do it. That's why they keep at it. That's why they get better at it. And by and large, um, they're all volunteers. Yeah. Almost all volunteers, which means they're having a good time. And something keeps getting better for them, or they would mm -hmm. get bored and go away, because right. that always happens. That's right. So this is not like the cells, who stayed the same as the body uh, became more and more complex. These are cells that are themselves becoming more and more complex. And gaining complexity, not only in how they relate to life with all these cool tools, but in the complexity that they are absorbing by participating in this huge complex event. Yeah. And largely in enjoying that. So this is a, you talk about, in Vannevar Bush and so on, talk about human-computer symbiosis. Uh, it seems to be, have this other quality from other symbioses we know yeah, about. Yeah. Um, it's not a singularity, probably, but it is some rapidly self-enhancing set of processes. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of interesting to know. I, I actually think that uh, some people are going to be enhanced and some people are going to become less capable as a result. You know, in the same well, way, you know, or, in, or along certain axes. Again, kind of going back to the failed hunter-gatherer. But that's know. the story in Race yeah, Against yeah. the Machine, which I just reviewed, yeah, yeah. so I'm sort of aware of it. Um, and John Henry goes up against the steam hammer. Yeah. And steam hammer wins, and John Henry, well, John Henry wins, but he breaks his heart, so he loses. And the steam hammer carries on, and John Henry doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but there are other John Henrys who are designing the steam hammers, and they're doing fine. And this is the point that the authors in Race Against the Machine make, that uh, who loses is the people who race against the machine. And who wins are those who figure out how to race with the machine. Yeah, I think and that's And there are a lot of people yeah. in that category. And the, yeah. the horrendous shift that we're seeing is that shift from, uh, well, it's a double shift. One is the shift from racing against the machine to racing with the machine right. and being rewarded for that, and the machine itself getting richer from doing that. But they end with an amazing line, which is that this is a deeper shift. They're economists, a dismal uh, approach to life to be an economist. Uh, because everything is based on the economics of scarcity. And they're saying what just happened is that we're now dealing with an economics of abundance. Yeah. And that is a fundamental shift, yeah. which they say is also fundamentally beneficial. Yeah, if, if we harness it correctly. I mean, I think one of the you know, risks in the old you know, in, industrial economy was we kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to use this to... Um, you know, take costs out of the system. And, you know, early in the industrial economy, you had people who, you know, took thought uh, for, uh, you know, growing the ecosystem. You know, Henry Ford paying workers more than, than he had to in order to, so they could afford his product. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but you also had people who fought for, um, uh, you yeah, know, There's the line in the book about how the robots that build the cars <laughs> don't have to pay union dues. And right. And then, uh, uh, 
Walter Ruther says, and by the way, uh, they're not going to buy your cars either. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I think that that's a really, really important point. And so we have to actually start thinking about how that whole ecosystem works. And and uh, you know, I, I do think that the sharing economy is going to be kind of interesting. You look at things like um, uh, Airbnb. You know, where people, it starts out, well, you, on one, uh, one level, it's just like, wow, we're just, you know, people making a little extra money on the side by renting uh, uh, a room or whatever. But it really moves up at the high end to people who are creating experiences for each other. You know, and the most popular Kickstarter, uh, not Kickstarter, the mo most popular Airbnb locations are a lot like Kickstarters. You know, they're like, or, or a lot like popular YouTube videos. Somebody's crafted something special mm -hmm. that they're, they're offering to other people. And again, I just sort of that attention, early sign of that attention economy of where we're, you know, when we're no longer, you know, participating in that old industrial economy, we're just doing cool things for each other, you know. And I think that may be uh, an interesting sign of where this is going. Let's check back in 10 years from now and yeah. see how this stands at that point. Be really Thank you for coming Thank tonight. Thank you. All right, thanks. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.